After failed attempts to infect piglets with Helicobacter in 1984, Dr Barry Marshall decided to use himself as an animal model and drank a Petri dish full of bacteria. The rest is history. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr Mary Lushaz, your host. Joining me today from Perth, Western Australia, is Professor Barry Marshall, Nobel Laureate and Professor of Clinical Microbiology at the University of Western Australia. Today we're talking about his very personal discovery of Helicobacter pylori and its role in the pathogenesis of peptic ulcer disease. Welcome Barry and thanks for joining us. Hi there Mary. So how did your childhood and early medical career lead you towards the study of Helicobacter and gastroenterology? <laughs> That's a hard one to answer. I tell the story of uh, when I was in the 50s when the polio vaccine first came out, it must have been about 1956, I remember I was walking along with my mother and we were heading to get our get my vaccination and we walked past a house with two cars parked on the front lawn and I said hey mum how come they've got two cars and she said uh, he's a doctor dear so maybe they made an impression but I can remember that day but my father was a fitter a mechanical fitter and then a diesel engineer and worked on caterpillar tractors whaling stations boats refrigeration and always had a lot of technical books around the house. And my mother was a nurse, so the, the other books I had to look at were nursing books. And so you might not remember what it was like, but in the 50s, there were not very many books at all in an Australian house. So I probably had more than most, and I probably read every single one of them cover to cover by the time I was nine years old. So you, you started your career in medicine as a general physician? That's true. I was doing internal medicine training and I was just into my first year of three years clinical when I started meeting up with uh, the helicobacter, if you like. And how did your association with Robin Warren begin? Well, I had a, a random rotation for six months through gastroenterology, not as a gastroenterology trainee, but as an internal medicine w w would be a ward registrar, so it's sort of a general medicine rotation. And part of the thing you have to do in Western Australia is a clinical research project for each of the three years in your physician training and the project I chose was to follow up the clinical side of about 20 patients that Dr Warren had seen who had a curved bacteria on their biopsy so my boss said go down and see Dr Warren he's got these interesting bacteria no one believes they're important but why don't you just see if there's anything associated with them so I spent an afternoon there with Robin Warren he was teaching me all about gastritis showing me these bacteria at the end of the afternoon, I decided that it was quite an exciting project because bacteria supposedly didn't live in the stomach. It was acidic and sterile as far as everyone was concerned. There's no reports of bacteria in the human stomach. Bacteria in the stomach were not associated with any disease. And possibly Robin Warren believed that they were associated with inflammation, which was gastritis. So it was a curious association. And the exciting idea was maybe this is a weird Australian disease, you know, spread by koala bears or kangaroos or something. So it was a wide open research project without any specific goals, I suppose. At the time, what was the patient burden of the disease in Australia, in the western part of Australia where you worked? When we studied 100 people, 60 of them had the helicobacter, approximately 60 or 57, some number like that. So of all patients coming to endoscopy, the majority of them had the helicobacter. And when we then tested blood donors, we found that about 40% of the population had it. And at the time, do you remember what the comparable rates were worldwide, for example, in North America? 
was similar in the US and a few years after we started reporting it, there was a study from, I think, San Francisco or California Kaiser serology banks were examined back into the 60s. And apparently about 1966 or 67, the prevalence of H. pylori in Californian men aged about 40 years was 60% is my recollection, but more than 50%. So in the 60s at least, you could say even in California, more than half the population was infected with H. pylori. And this is probably an upper socioeconomic group at that time because these people had private insurance. And at the time when you started working with Robin Warren, did you have a name for the bacteria? People say, why didn't you name it after yourself? But one of the reasons might have been that we suspected that it was a venereal disease or sexually transmitted because it was more common in ladies attending the STD clinic, for example, at least serologically. But that was probably a socioeconomic thing. We then called it Campylobacter because Campylobacter means curved bacteria and it looks very similar under the microscope. But on electron microscopy, it's got different kind of flagella there sheathed not a simple flagellum like a normal Campylobacter, but we called it Campylobacter and we call it pyloridus, which means at the pylorus or near the pylorus. Unfortunately, we had to change the name several times because our classical scholarship was not all that great. And the Greek scholars were arguing with with the Roman scholars and we had Greek mixed up with Latin in the name and we had to be consistent. So I think ultimately it was called Helicobacter, which is viral bacteria, and pylori, which means of the pylorus, and it's a Greek one. Uh So who decided that in the end? Well, it was one of the professors who's an editor on the Journal of Clinical Bacteriology, I think, or one of those big ASM journals. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Mary Lushars, your host. And today I'm talking with Nobel Laureate Professor Barry Marshall from the University of Western Australia. And we're discussing how he proved that H. pylori causes ulcer disease by infecting himself. So, Barry, you've got to tell us a story about drinking the helicobacter. How did it happen? Well, you know, I was a bit shy about it because it's a bit embarrassing to say that you're experimenting on yourself. People thought I was a little bit eccentric anyway with this idea of bacteria causing ulcers. And so I didn't tell very many people about it, but we cultured helicobacter from a man with uh, gastritis. He didn't actually have an ulcer. We tested it on against antibiotics to be sure that we could eradicate it or thought we could. And then about a month later, I had an endoscopy that showed my stomach was normal. And the following week, I drank a Petri dish of the the bacteria, actually two Petri dishes dissolved in about 20 mils of meat broth. On that day, I was fasting in the morning and about 10.30 in the morning, well, I took a couple of Tagamet tablets to knock off the excess gastric acid I thought I might have. And I scraped two Petri dishes, blood agar plates, into some meat broth, 20 mils or so, and then held my nose and sculled it down uh, just like a shot of tequila. So I didn't really think too much about what it tasted like. And everybody asked me what did it taste like? And I have to say that I'm not going to tell you because the paper's being prepared and and we'll publish that next year sometime. When you did this experiment, did you run this by an ethics committee? I didn't run it past the ethics committee and I'm not quite sure of, of what my thought processes were at that time. Whenever I published an abstract, a post or gave an oral presentation, the experts would get up out of the audience and say, Dr. Marshall, you're wrong. People with ulcers then catch these harmless bacteria which are so common they couldn't possibly be the cause of the ulcers so it's ulcers first bacteria contamination and I didn't have an animal model so you really had to have an animal model to show that you could have a healthy animal 
infected with the bacteria, developing gastritis and then a peptic ulcer. So it was a very important thing to prove. And our experiments in pigs and mice had failed. At that stage, no one else had an animal model either. And so I said, well, if I'm right about this, then these bacteria should be able to affect infect a healthy human because 40% of the population in my hometown has them. So that, it was an important experiment and it became more and more crucial because that year I had numerous papers rejected, I had presentations that weren't accepted. It was very frustrating for me and I, I really needed to get on with my life. If I was wrong about this, well, nothing would happen. But if I was correct, then I thought that I would develop asymptomatic gastritis and then maybe you know, six months or a couple of years later, I'd develop peptic ulcer. So I needed to know. Did you try and get Robin Warren to drink it before you did? Well, Robin and I discussed it and I can't remember why he chickened out. I think maybe he didn't chicken out. Maybe he said that he already had the bacteria and therefore I couldn't use him. I can't remember how I knew that. Perhaps we did his serology and then ruled him out. And what about medical students? Well, you, you would have had to have had an ethics committee approval. The thing about the ethics committee, it was such an important experiment. I could see that the people's lives were dependent on it because, remember, peptic ulcer is a fatal disease. And if the treatment was going to be something simple like amoxicillin, there was only an upside to proving this. There was no downside as far as I could tell. And we needed to get the data out there as quick as possible. And so I decided that I, if I submitted to an ethics committee and they said no what would happen then? I would still go ahead and do it and uh, I'd probably be sacked. So it would be safer actually to not ask anybody and just do it quietly on myself and then decide what to do after that. What did your wife say? It's, it's hard to remember exact words, but shock, horror would probably be the, the correct answer. But she's very a thoughtful and sympathetic person. So she was immediately worried about me becoming unwell, developing an ulcer, and then if, she worried about the children being infected because I was after the second week, after the first week, I started throwing up in the morning. So she's thinking it's infectious. So at that point, she said, "This experiment can't go on any further. You have to take some antibiotics immediately." But I did string it out for a few days so I could get some biopsies and get the diagnostic material, and then I started antibiotics. So it taught me a lot. When you realised you'd made this discovery, who were your most notable detractors? Well, it was, a, it was a funny situation because some of the most notable detractors were actually good scientists and they set out to prove me wrong and immediately realised that they were getting the same data as me. And so within 12 months, my most you know, dangerous or notable detractors had changed sides and we were really on my side. So there was after about 1985, even in the US, I gradually started collecting people who were interested and and getting the same results, doing the same research. But I can tell you that one of the first lectures I gave in the United States was actually in Dallas at, I think, Southwestern. And that was the headquarters of the group that have subsequently been called the Acid Mafia, who believed that everything was caused by acid and nothing was caused by bacteria. And I turned up in the States and uh, went down to Texas and gave a lecture there and they were very very polite and I thought they really loved my lecture but apparently they <laughs> hated it and set out to prove me wrong but couldn't do it and so that then uh, a, a few years later a lot of publications on helicobacter were coming out of Dallas and uh, and uh, they would be my staunchest supporters eventually. Do you think the drug companies had any influence in hindering the progress of the discovery of helicobacter? They did indirectly because 
if your share price depended on the old acid blocking treatment for ulcers, then you couldn't really support research that was going to undermine the major product in your company. And so the best thing that they could do was ignore the possibility of bacteria causing ulcers because if they said it wasn't true or came out against it, they would just build the publicity because in the US, everyone likes a fight. Everyone likes a controversy. So as soon as something's controversial, it's news. So the best thing they could do was pretend it didn't exist and carry on with the acid research. And so that's what happened for five or six years. And then it, it was impossible to keep the lid on it because everybody was excited about Helicobacter. And I know the, the American Gastro Association convention one year in New Orleans must have been 1988 or 1989. And there were hundreds of posters on Helicobacter. There were like rows and rows of them. And someone did an interview with me in front of the posters at the poster session and as he was interviewing me on camera, and I didn't realise I had a, a lapel mic stuck on, I'd kind of forgotten about it. <laughs> and uh, they were still, they were, they were just filming me walking, looking at the posters. And somebody came up to me that I had never met before, and they said, "Dr. Marshall, congratulations! This is a great discovery. You and Dr. Warren are certainly going to win the Nobel Prize." <laughs> I immediately pulled out my rabbit's foot and started throwing salt over my shoulder, touching wood. Because I could say nothing could be worse, worse of a jinx, I would think, than, than having your plans to win the Nobel Prize exposed on the, on the news media. Well, thanks very much, Professor Barry Marshall, for talking to us today. We've been discussing how to infect yourself with Helicobacter and live to tell the tale. I'm Dr Mary Lushars, your host. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions through our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. Thanks for listening.